I think for me, I take it a step further is then I, I release expectations. I expect greatness, but I don't dictate what that looks like because I often think that when I don't get a project or I don't get a job that is protecting me or there's something that I something bigger down the road. So I, that has really helped me to release the frustration. Yeah. Now I do understand the frustration if I feel like I'm not prepared and I don't do my job. Right. So I even show up to pitches. My intention is to have a good time telling a story I love. If I do my job, I'm proud of myself. The outcome is out of my hands, um, but I just try to make sure that I do my job to the best of my ability. That's it. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in TV, film, commercials, and off-Broadway. And every week I bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. I am so thrilled to introduce you to this mentor. I'd been working to get her on the podcast for a very long time. She was a huge, exciting get for me. She is currently a writer on one of my favorite shows of all time, Grey's Anatomy. She also worked on two seasons of Queen Sugar. She's developed drama pilots for NBC Universal, sold a pilot to 20th Century Fox. She's the co-executive producer of the 2020 feature film Really Love with Emmy-winning actress Uzo Aduba. Most recently, she's known for her directorial debut for the, f- the film Tender, which won a Lionsgate Stars Award as well as, you know, been in many prestigious festivals. She has written eight books since 2008. I mean, she is so accomplished and she has so much wisdom to share with us. We talk about fellowships. She was a screenwriting fellow for Film Independent and as well as an NBC writer on The Verge with NBC Universal Media. We talk about her role as a director of independent film for Tug, Inc. And I ask her questions like, what's something people should focus on if they want to self-distribute effectively? And so she gives wonderful tips about that, about working in television, in writer's rooms, what it's like. And uh, it's just amazing. I'm so, so excited for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, here's Felicia Pride. Thank you so much, Felicia, for being on the podcast. I'm so, so honored and grateful, really, to have you. Thank Very you much so. Much for me and for this wonderful platform. Thank you. So the first question I always ask my guests is, what was your first role in the entertainment industry? That's so interesting. I guess I'm like, how are we defining that? Because, um, you know, I went to school for business because it sounded like a great way to get a job. I kind of had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and on graduation, I was working in corporate America and I was bored. So I found this internship where um, it was for a community newspaper, a black community newspaper out of Staten Island. And um, my first published piece was a piece about Mary J. Blige's No More Drama album. And I had no idea about music criticism, but I knew Mary and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to write this. And I saw my name in print. And that kind of like put me on this journey of becoming an, a writer for entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I was a freelance writer for entertainment while also working, you know, full time in corporate America and that sort of thing. 
Mm. But that really like solidified the writing bug for me. Um, And then I worked in book publishing um, and worked as an impact producer where I was essentially helping social justice projects, whether they were documentaries, TV projects, whatever, reach audiences. Um, So I don't know if there's like entertainment adjacent. And I guess it wasn't until I made the decision about six years ago to move to L.A. from D.C. and really pursue my dreams of writing for TV and film, well, actually film at the time. Um, and I moved out here and I got a job working in film distribution, which was like a extension of the work I was doing as an impact producer. So that was like my first LA job where I was going to the film festivals for free and all these things, so. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I was telling you before, this might be a little different than other interviews I've done because while most people in entertainment do have a lot of like, you know, different type of positions and different industries. You've done so much and you've also done so much at the same time. Like, I feel like, you know, for example, um, you held a series of jobs like production coordinator and producer and writer at various places like Participant Media, Twin Cities Public Television, Washington Jewish Film Festival. Um, and then simultaneously, you were also writing for, you know, Vibe, The Root, Baltimore Sun, other publications. So you were, and then and in 2008, you wrote your first book. I think that was your first YA novel, right? Patterson Heights. So you were doing that all simultaneously, which makes sense as a writer. When did you start deciding on that those type of things? Did you want to be a writer? And you were just like, I'm just going to figure out different ways to write. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a couple of things. I definitely wanted to be a writer, but it was hard to be a full-time writer um, because I was essentially, you know, a freelance writer and, um, you know, print was still happening, but it was dwindling. So mm-hmm. more of the digital opportunities were coming up, but they didn't hadn't figured out how to pay people correctly. So I was just like hustling, but also yeah. it, was, it was partly that, but also, you know, once I started writing books, that was great. And that was my life for a good three, four years. And then writing books became harder for me to sustain again financially. Mm -hmm. And so I think I got scared. So I found myself kind of doing a lot of things. I was all over the place um, because I think I was running away from writing essentially. And like the, the perseverance that it requires for artists um, to continue down that path. I think I started running away and started to use being of service to other artists as a distraction. So my work as an impact producer, which I loved, I did a lot of, I think, important work and was able to support a lot of important work by wonderful artists was a way for me to hide from my own work and my own art. Um, so I think that's what was, what was kind of happening with all those yeah. different, even though I still wanted to be adjacent to the creative process. Which you were for all of, I think, your jobs that yeah. I saw. Yeah. Um, how was it to like start submitting to different publications? So let's, you know, just that period of time initially, like before you really, you know, you said you saw your name in print for the first time with the Mary J. Blige piece, but, you know, for, for other publications, like how did you just start? Yeah, it, it, was, it was, you know, very similar to the, the, what a lot, a lot of writers go through it's submitting and rejection, submitting and rejection, submitting and rejection, pitching, submitting, rejection, pitching, submitting, rejection, getting some wins um, here and there. Uh, but it was this endless cycle of that. And then like a lot, it was just a lot of work being a freelance writer. And I, um, I actually had held a Zoom maybe like a few months ago for journalists and freelance writers who want to transition to TV, film, TV mm. and film. Because that is a grind, especially if you're not on staff. 
um, and it doesn't pay the way it needs to, the amount of work that you put in from transcribing interviews and all that. So it was it was a continuous grind. I was proud of the work that I was doing, but it just was not adding up in terms of financial, financially. Um, and then also I knew that I wanted to do more narrative work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those two things combined. Excellent. Thank you. Um, great. So then in 2008, you created Pride Co- Pride Collaborative, yeah. right? And uh, you really produced large, like large scale media projects. You developed and executed comprehensive engagement and content strategy plans. Uh, there was something I read that really like was interesting to me. I wanted to ask you about. So for Confab Central for 2014, you did a lot of research about like users and their interaction with TV in particular, like how, how are they with like second devices while watching? Do you remember that? And yeah, uh, you talked about, yeah, you, you talked about transmedia storytelling. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about if you could elaborate on what transmedia storytelling is and if you use any of that now. Yeah, I mean, transmedia became like a buzzword for just the idea of telling stories um, across multiple platforms in order to create additional access points for audiences, right? Mm, right. Um, so projects had already been doing that. Transmedia came around as a term and then I think went out of style. But I was very, and I'm still very interested in, uh, the connection between audiences and access. So basically creating content and providing that content where audiences are versus having audiences come to the content. I'm always interested in how you can uh, format content in different ways and adapt content for different platforms. Um, And uh, so that's where a lot of that work came from, where it was like just kind of studying and concretizing um, new ways to have stories have multiple access points. And I'm still very interested in that in my work. Um, You know, I I feel like my mission, yes, is partly to tell stories that uh, center Black Gen X women, but it's also to get those stories to the audiences I intended for, which primarily will begin with Black women. I, I think that the second part is just as, as important as the first. Well said. Wow. And and I really felt like that sort of streamlined to something else that you did afterwards, which was um, as director of independent films, which we're going to, I want to talk more about, but specifically while you were there, you wrote, I read an article that you wrote for IndieWire that yeah. reminded me of this, this, this idea, this thorough line of just have, making sure that specifically in this case, like indie filmmakers, people are trying to self-publish their work, they get it to the right audience. And you said it was as important sometimes as creating the stories to then figure out a complete marketing plan. So could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Wow. You are bringing me way back. (laughs) I appreciate this so much. Like, um, so I got a degree when I say I went, got a degree in business, I got a degree in marketing. Um, and so one of my, I went to grad school. So I was entertainment writer, decided I wanted to go back to school, kind of professionalize my work, but also because I wanted to be an author. So I went to Emerson and studied writing literature and publishing and still had sort of the the practical side of me. I'm like, okay, I can get a job in publishing if it's too hard to be a writer. So I end up getting a job in publishing and I, and I work in the marketing department. And I remember one of my first jobs, uh, was I helped to create the the company's first newsletter. 
that was going to go directly to customers. And I remember it being such a big deal and also a lot of pushback because the idea of going directly to consumers and directly to customers was not a thing that publishing did. And it was like, it was just really weird. Um, But I was always thinking about that sort of connection with the audience. I was always thinking about the importance of making sure that people know about the work and not just doing it for a six week period. I really believe that things are new if you haven't heard about it. And publishing at the time would, in terms of like publicity cycles would be a good six weeks maybe that that they would publish, uh, promote a book and then move on. Um, So around that time, I'd also started a sort of community that would celebrate black books called backlist and backlist means those titles that remain in print because I'm very interested in continuously promoting work and making sure that it gets to the people that it was intended for. So a lot of the work that I then transitioned into film with my job as director of independent film and where I would help filmmakers develop distribution plans and that were hybrid plans that Um, So it kind of was like when you're talking about transmedia, thinking about the different ways to exploit distribution mechanisms that came from the book world. And that came from just my thinking about audience and and being that sort of artist. So what's a tip that you would give to people? I mean, in that particular article, you named like a few tips, so I could definitely bring them up for you. I know it was a while ago, but what's like a number one tip? Well, I I can tell you like, you know, with Tender, which was my short film, I use a lot of the processes that Mm -hmm. I would help other filmmakers use to develop their distribution plans. I used it for my own. So the first thing that I always say is you want to have goals because a lot of times, um, for instance, I would work with filmmakers who say that one of their goals is they want as many people as possible to see their film. Okay, fine. And then they tell me they want a theatrical release for their documentary versus Mm. uh, a PBS broadcast. A PBS broadcast could get you 1.2 million people. Your theatrical theatrical release, not that many (laughs) for a documentary. I can tell you that right now. So So your goals are not matching up with your strategy. And it's okay to have that goal, right? That you want to have a theatrical release, but just make sure the goals match up with the strategy. So when you have that, those goals, they they are like your North Star. So for Tender, we one of my goals was for as many people to see as possible as possible. So I limited the festival run because of that. Because I'm like the people I want to see this film all of them are not going to attend festivals. Um, Mm -hmm. So why not? And plus we had a unique opportunity of the pandemic where people were home. So we released it online. And that was our way of trying to make our goal of as many people seeing as possible while sacrificing our, well, knowing we were possibly sacrificing festivals who may not want to screen our film because we're online. But that actually wasn't the case. We were able to do a film festival run alongside releasing it on Vimeo um, and it worked out really well. Yeah. I mean, I, I first came across uh, your work at Imagine This Film Festival. You were a panelist oh, nice. for them and I, I was a moderator for something. So That's I saw lovely, you. Lovely what? festival. Lovely Such festival. Well done festival. I, like they sent me like a gift bag and stuff. Hey. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. As a moderator, I did not get a gift bag, but I made <laughs> sense that you did. So, but I, I just felt like I immediately followed you and I started following your stuff. And then I kind of will go into later why I was like, oh, wow, look at how much she's doing. Because, you know, there's only so much that social media shows you at once. And then after time, you're like, 
Okay, Felicia, you are you are doing a lot of stuff. You are still doing a lot of stuff, um, which is amazing. But uh, I wanted to, so thank you for bringing up those tips about self-distribution and developing goals. And I think that's a good strategy for anyone in entertainment, but specifically filmmakers, because- yeah. And I would just say the second tip is yeah, please. like your rights are your most important and valuable asset. Um, so you do not want to give them away nilly willy, uh, willy nilly. And you want to make sure that the contracts that you're signing with distributors or anyone who wants to license your license your work makes sense for who they are. Typically, so for, for instance, even for Tender, there were people who wanted um, exclusive rights to my film um, and weren't paying me enough for exclusive rights to my film. Um, or they wanted it for longer than I would want them to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to make sure that the term was right. I wanted to make sure that also what they did matched with what they were asking for. Like if you are um, in TV, you're not going to get, you know, film or airline rights from me because you don't know how to exploit those. So making, being very clear about how you are dishing out your rights because they are your most valuable asset. I want to ask you, I mean, that reminds me of a question. Let's see, because I didn't, I didn't think I was going to ask this, but now that I, it came up, so right now, diversity is being thrown around a lot, right? And for some, some it's great. I mean, in a good way. It's coming from Black Lives Matter. It's coming from a long, long, you know, overdue. Just yeah. it, should, it should have been talked about for many more years. But luckily, it's, it's it is sort of talked about more now. How much do you think what's going on specifically in, with entertainment that they are sort of elevating? Like specifically, I mean, anyone really, but black creators and black filmmakers for almost posterity. And how much do you think it's because they actually want to uplift these stories? I know that's a weird question, but I I really want to make sure like for for Tender, do you feel like there were some people who were like, I want to bring Tender on to this film festival to fill a slot that I think needs to be filled or yeah, yeah. We've actually had that happen right around, you know, sort of the uprisings and um, I called them out on it. (laughs) Well, first of all, you're not paying enough if you want to use the film in this way. Um, And then also you're not going to use us to sell this product um, without any real commitment to the work or furthering the work. So yeah, we called it out. And it's interesting because the film festival um, that had a partnership with this brand respected that and we were able to find other opportunities to work with the film festival. Um, But yeah, so it absolutely does happen. Um, But I'm of the mind too that uh, the business case for diversity has already been made. It's been made time and time again. Again and again. For me, it's not about, um, you know, I see all these studies, which are great, but they're like, you know, trying to convince Hollywood that it's it's a good business sense. Hollywood doesn't care about that. It's bizarre. It's about supremacy. It's not about uh, dollars. Capitalism is not about dollars. So, um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a, it's a great point because I mean it's it's you're right. Studies have been showing this for years. The people yes. have been showing up to films that, you know, have black stories, black content, black casts and yet it's almost like people need more proof. It makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's definitely that. 
Um, okay, so in 2016, you were chosen as a screenwriting fellow for Film Independent. And yeah. then next year, the following year, you were chosen uh, as an NBC writer on The Verge for uh, NBC Universal Media. So both were very competitive. Yeah. Right? Specifically, the second one had an incredible amount of applicants, but both are very competitive. I just wanted to ask you about your thoughts on fellowships and competitions, specifically for writers, though I know that they also have like director division and all you know other divisions as well what are your thoughts on them on fellowships for writers as a whole do you recommend them Um, I do I had a I had great experiences in both programs Um, and Writers on the Verge uh, continues to be a program that keeps giving because of the people behind it Mm -hmm. Uh, Karen Horn who used to run it uh, remains a a complete supporter of me and my career and a resource in so many ways. Um, my cohort of, of writers that I went through the program with in both, uh, actually both programs were still um, in touch and supportive of each other. So for me, I got a lot of it out that. I think sometimes though, people put all their eggs in one basket and are disappointed when the programs don't provide immediate jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't look at the programs like that. I also thought, I think people should throw all the darts at the dartboard. Um, and so that's kind of how I looked at it was a way to continue to generate heat um, a way to meet more people and get my work in front of more people. Uh, but I knew that I would still have to be putting in the work to get staffed and nice. um, stuff of my career. So what was the biggest thing you've got from each one, from both the TV fellowship and Writers on the Verge? Um, from Film Independent Screenwriting Lab, uh, well, I'm, that film got made. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, that wasn't necessarily because of the program, but, um, you know, I think all of it helps. And then right that, that film is called really love and was produced by macro and premiered at AFI fest last year. And then, uh, thank you. And then writers on the verge, um, you know, Karen, I went into the program as a comedy writer. And Karen Horn told me um, after the program, she said, you know, you should think about writing an hour long, like a light drama, because there's just more drama jobs. And I took her advice, wrote a a drama uh, pilot, and that's the pilot that got me staffed on Queen Sugar. So, and also Karen was uh, helpful in getting me staffed in terms of putting in a word for me on Queen Sugar. So, Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. I'm hearing more and more, and I wanted to ask your opinion on this, are specs scripts still a thing? Are they still used or people more? I've, I've been hearing from writers that really write a pilot, write something that you could think of as very, very strong. And that's what you start going to different showrunners I, with. I think you should write specs, uh, period, because essentially your job when you're in a TV writer's room is to write specs of the show that yeah. you write. It is to write in the showrunner's voice. That is your job. Um, The more that you can get that practice in of mimicking voice and mimicking structure, mimicking dialogue. um, And you, and it's so great because you can, you know, write a script and then watch the show and like compare the two, you know, so it's such a great practice. And I just think you should have specs in your um, portfolio. Yeah. Um, but in terms of your portfolio, I do recommend two specs. I remember, I recommend two to three original pilots and then, a feature if you want to write features and then a wild card, a short story, a play, 
short film. Nice. And so which specs did you write or have you written? Uh, yeah. So to get into I, the first time I applied for the programs, I did a broad city spec, um, which I think is pretty funny. And then I um, didn't apply for the next year. And then the next spec that I wrote for the programs was um, Atlanta. And I yeah. love the Atlanta spec because the one thing that I learned about applying for the programs is that when you do write a spec, you want to take a big swing. Um, so my Atlanta spec takes place in purgatory and Whitney Houston is in it. Tupac is in it. Oh. Um, but it's still like it's a wild swing, but it still kind of has the sensibilities, maintains the sensibilities of the show, I think at least. But yeah. Um, but that helped me to stand out. So when you are applying to these fellowships and these programs, you want to make sure you maintain the integrity of the show, but take a swing that people are going to remember. So you got into the fellowship, the programs with the spec scripts, but you got Queen Sugar from a pilot. Also had to do original pilot for the programs as well. Oh, good so, to know. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing I say is like to have a cohesive application. So for instance, yeah. the year that I got in, um, you really want to take time to focus on your fellowship and bio essay questions. Usually we breeze over those, yeah. but that really talked about my relationship with my father, which was t- tumultuous at a part of it, um, but how he inspired my writing in a lot of ways. My original pilot is about um, at the core of it, a, a father-daughter relationship. And then the Lana spec that takes place in purgatory um, mm. is a paper boy and his father. Um, so wow. there's a through line of the, you know, the parent child relationship that helped to create a cohesive package for my application. Have you been able to put any of that in Queen Sugar and Grays so far? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the great thing about being in writer's room is that, you know, so many of who we are as the, our writers, of, as writers, our experiences, our stories go into the show um, as a very collaborative process. So absolutely. Yeah. And so when did you start getting a very strong sense of who you are and what you wanted to create? Because like you said, you've started, you you know, you're really explaining how there's this thorough line. And at one point you did mention specifically for Tender that you had a goal of who you wanted the audience to be, who you wanted to reach. But it seems like that there's that sort of sort of thorough line, like from all of that work is you've really started to develop this idea of who you are, what you had to offer, what you wanted to share and who you wanted to reach. So when did that really become clear to you? You know, it's a great question because the other thing that when people are like, well, how did, like, what do you attribute to like, you achieved like what you achieved and a lot of it is self-work to be honest I think that there's a connection yeah. between self-work and craft too I would say around 2017 was a shit show for me um so when I was in Writers in the Verge my father died um and then I had some crazy things go down in the business and I was having like a horrible breakup and that's oh. when I was like ooh, like life is gonna keep lifing I need to make sure I have my tools up but I also realized that I was in low self-worth in these situations so I did a lot of self-work around exactly what you're asking who am I why am I here um, what value did I do I bring and add? Um, and it's something that I do to this day. I, I maintain my self-work along with the craft um, because it allows you to become more vulnerable, right? It allows yeah. you 
go deeper on the page allows you to also have a strong sense of self, which I think you need in this business because this business will try to confuse you. Um, And so the more that I did the self work, the better the craft became, but also the stronger my commitment to the craft. Like I'm in two writers groups to this day. I am in three classes right now. Like I'm very clear on my purpose and that my purpose is bigger than Hollywood. Wow. Um, and that nobody can take it from me. Um, and so I just settle into it and I just maintain getting, you know, continue to try to be the be- best version of myself and the best artist I can be. First of all, it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, and something I think any creative, specifically in this industry, but in general can relate to because, you know, as like as an actor, right? I'm an actor. So as an actor, it's I do think that there is that same correlation, like how well do we know ourselves and what we want to put out there? And Mm -hmm. that is immediately tied into our Mm self-worth. And, and I think once you have that strong idea, which I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm still formulating. I'm still, it's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah. I think it's the commitment. That's the most important thing, the commitment to the journey, you know? Mm. Well, what are, what are some things that you did to, to get those answers for yourself? Were you journaling? Were you meditating? Therapy was huge. Um, Therapy was really, really big for me. Yoga also is, is very big for me still. Um, It was because it helped to create a mind and body connection, mind, body, spirit connection. Yeah. Um, Hiking, uh, meditation, um, definitely journaling. And then I was doing like these self-help classes that I would find online. You know what I mean? Like anything that could help me, um, I was doing it. And I still, to this day, listen to like in the mornings when I'm like getting ready, I'm listening to some sort of podcast on self-help that is helping me to maintain, because a lot of this, we have so much conditioning, right. And so much that has happened to us that it's not going to change overnight. So for me, I need to keep strengthening, um, yeah. the, my brain and, and the rewiring that I'm doing. So, yeah. How, do you think now, do you, do you find, cause to me anyway, and we always have a different version of ourselves, but to me, you seem to have a very high self-worth, very strong understanding of purpose. Do you, yeah. do you feel that you do? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) But it took a lot of work and it took, you know, I'll be 42 this year. So I would say it took me to like 39 to, to get here. Um, And that was from making a decision. That was also from making a decision. Yes. To put in the work, but also from, you know, tragedy, (laughs) like and pain and hurt and grief. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I wasn't going to ask this, but now I I want to, um, yesterday, my uncle, he's a tennis coach and he was talking about a loss. One of his players had, and there's always, I think a really good correlation between being an athlete and being a creative, which is why I thought of it. I love, I love the correlation. Correlation, Me too. There's so much to learn from athletes too. I agree. I agree. Um, so he was talking, you know, just sort of at the table, he was talking about uh, a recent loss and he said, his player was very frustrated about the loss. It was, he made some stupid mistakes, mistakes that, you know, you probably, it's more mental than it is your talent. And my, uh, my uncle said to him, you're frustrated because you have an expectation of a high, of, of an elite level player, but you, you are, you're not showing up as an elite level player. You're on, I'm going to butcher this. I'm going to try again. Round two, you have an elite level expectation, but you don't train like an elite athlete. 
Hello. <laughs> I, I stopped. I stopped everything. I was like, I need to write that down. I th- I, I just felt it because as you know, it's an athlete. Absolutely. But as a creative, it's the same mindset, in my opinion, it's absolutely. And that's what I, that's what like a lot of my friends in this business, you know, we, and that's the word we use. We train. It is a practice. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I think for me, I take it a step further is then I, I release expectations. Mm. Um, I expect greatness, but I don't dictate what that looks like because I often think that when I don't get a project or I don't get a job that is protecting me or there's something that I something bigger down the road. So I, that has really helped me to release the frustration. Yeah. Now I do understand the frustration if I feel like I'm not prepared and I don't do my job. Right. So I even show up to pitches. My intention is to have a good time telling a story I love. If I do my job, I'm proud of myself. The outcome is out of my hands, um, but I just try to make sure that I do my job to the best of my ability. That's it. But I, but I think that's an elite level creative mentality. Yes. Like that's a mindset. And it takes time to get there. Too. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you for that. But yes, but I, but I do. So what are some things you do? I mean, you've already touched on some of it with the writers group, et cetera, but what are some things, some things you do to train like an elite level creative every day? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few things. One is that I, I love classes. So like I said, I'm always in classes um, and I have um, different teachers that I work with um, for different things. Yeah. Um, my writers groups are important to me as well because it also not just sharing my own material, but also sharpening my tool to identify story problems and identify story solutions because that's like the valuable skill that yeah. you can have bringing into the writer's room. I also feel like the writer's room continues to be a training ground because you're continuously having to do that same thing, right? how to identify story solutions or pitch ideas. Um, So that continues to be. And then I also have put together, like when I started directing, in addition to taking classes, I put together like what I call my film school. So it's articles, it's books, it's um, YouTube videos, it's whatever I can do to continue to just learn um, is that's how I go about it. I love it. Yeah. Someone told me the other day and it really stuck with me. It's like, uh, Michelle, like you should approach acting maniacally. Like, I think that there's an element of like, what can we do to make sure that like, we're, we're doing it, but for ourselves, there's a difference between doing a list of things you think you should do as a creative. Yeah. Just for, for a result, kind of what you were saying before. Yeah. I think for me, I just am excited about can, like growth, growth turns me on. Like that's my shit. You know what I mean? So like growth mentally, growth emotionally, growth financially, growth um, in my craft, like that to become a better storyteller every day is like, that's what I, that's, that's my thing, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I love that. Um, great. Very good on time. Um, all right. So in 2018, you became a staff writer for Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar. We talked about it briefly. Yeah. Hold on. We talked about it briefly. Um, and you moved to story editor after like a short time. How did you, we talked a little bit about how you got that particular show with the the pilot. But can you talk about that transition to working in a writer's room? And what did you learn about that? Yeah, I mean, I was grateful that it was like the perfect first writer's room. Our showrunner, Anthony Sparks, is brilliant um, and a wonderful leader and kind. So shows that you can be smart and uh, expect excellence and be kind. 
um, and still be a teacher because learned so much from him. Um, and so the transition was actually pretty smooth. I mean, you know, I was 38, I turned 39 as a staff writer in the room, um, but it was pretty smooth. And it was also great because it was, it's a smaller room. It's like six writers. So um, there was opportunity for me f- from beginning to contribute. Um, and Anthony also runs the room with not a tight hierarchy. If you have a good idea, he wants to hear it. Um, And so that really encouraged and empowered me to share and speak up. And and he really helped me to like find my space um, in the room. So yeah, it was a wonderful experience. What what are um, like one or two storylines that you particularly look back on, like that are incredibly memorable for you that you helped or you were part of? Um, I wrote an episode alongside Chloe Hung, um, who's an amazing writer and a a good friend. Um, Episode 410, which dealt with trauma and sexual assault. Um, And I feel like we were all very, very proud of um, that episode. Well, it's interesting because you wrote another one that touched on that for Grace. Yeah. Yeah. It's like coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. So I I have a a listener of the podcast, I'm Therese Lacey. So she wanted to know what the transition like was from Queen Sugar to Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. I mean, very two different shows, but also so grateful that the Grey's Room welcomed me with open arms and just so grateful to work with such talented group of writers and our our wonderful showrunner, Krista Vernoff, um, to be able to tell those stories for us to be able to tell those stories is, is something that I definitely don't take for granted. Yeah. And we're grateful. We're grateful for all of you guys for telling Mm -hmm. those stories, honestly, because I think that we need more of that. Absolutely. Um, I started in that room. It was Zoom. <laughs> so I didn't even get wow. to like my bosses in person for a long, long time. Um, so it was just very great. Um, but it's a bigger room. Um, more yeah. episodes moves faster. Um, so that was just great to see like the broadcast side of things. Um, and, and, a, and a well-oiled machine, you know, it's 17 seasons. <laughs> so. I, so I have to say, I haven't mentioned this. It's, it's my favorite show on television. Oh, wow. Still is. I've been a, I've been a longtime fan. You know, it's when, when, when you're a fan of Grey's, you're a fan of Grey's. It's- I, and they, I, they, I've been, people that I didn't realize were like lifelong Grey's really? fans. I now know. Yes. They have, they've um, shown me their badges of honor. <laughs> It's a phenomenal show. Um, can you tell me a little bit of just about the writer's room? Because you said it is a bigger room and Queen Sugar was about six people. Can you yeah. tell us how that works in a, in a, in a show like Grey's? I mean, it works pretty traditionally um, in terms of we show up and we pitch ideas. I mean, Zoom, of course, is not uh, in person. You know, I personally... Uh, it can be it can be exhausting and challenging, um, but yeah, we show up and we pitch ideas um, and we, yeah, it's pretty traditional, and that's why it wasn't such a big transition between the two rooms because it's it's pretty traditional in that way. Yeah, and 
So like, let's say you pitch an idea because I don't know as much about the writer's room as probably writers, but let's say you pitch an idea. Um, what is the, and let's say the showrunner goes, okay, you or you and you, like you can go write it. What's that process like? How do, do you write an episode? Yeah. Typically what happens in writer's rooms, I mean, they all differ, but typically you provide some sort of like beat sheet or outline um, first before you actually have the the episode and that gets um, approved and then you go off and write the episode. Um, and then usually you do rewrites on the episode um, and after you get feedback from um, your bosses or number twos or however it works, um, do the rewrites. Uh, and, then, and then the interesting thing about like both Grey's and Queen Sugar is that then, you know, it moves into production. Um, and then you may have the opportunity to be on set and produce the episode and go through the meetings, the production meetings and all of that. Um, but yeah. You, have you had the chance to do that? Yes. Oh, yeah. how's that? Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's great. I mean, because it's also, I think it's, it's great. Number one, cause you're like, Oh my gosh, like, people, all these people have showed up um, for something that like the writers have been like thinking about and writing about, you know? Yeah. And then also it just helps to learn the about produce, like things that are producible, right? Because yeah. when you are not in a room, you tend, you're just writing pilots, right? You're not thinking about writing in a way that someone is going to make this necessarily, right? right. Um, you're not necessarily thinking about how many locations you have, or you're not necessarily thinking about um, those sorts of concerns. So being in a room, you, you start to think like a producer. Um, cause you're like, some, we're actually gonna make this. Right. <laughs> so, this needs to be done. This needs to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. a skill that you start to, um, start to, uh, strengthen. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and on a show like Grey's, which has an incredibly large ensemble, how do you, how do you guys go about creating storylines? I mean, often there's a lot of storylines that are just, two-person scenes sometimes and sometimes there's large groups how are those structured yeah I mean I'm still like wrapping my head around it you know because it's pretty amazing that you just make sure you touch all the characters yeah <laughs> it's kind of like that crazy yeah, though, that yeah, like make sure you touch I mean and that's why the the sort of pre-writing process is important right the beat sheets and yeah um be, uh, breaking the episodes so you understand what storylines you're going to have in episodes to make sure that all the characters that need to be represented are represented um so that part is why it's also really important and then I I know that for typical writers rooms there's usually a story a I think and a story b right where like there's like a main storyline and a second storyline is that the case with Grays or is that wrong? Wrong completely. I mean, uh, I, I, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not your, just not your focus. <laughs> I mean, That's not you how you call it. That. Yeah, you may not call it that, but yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about your directorial debut with Tender. Can yeah. you discuss a little bit about? I mean, first of all, you won a lot of different awards, um, specifically Best Director of. Uh, uh, oh, a couple places, Seattle Black Film Festival, um, Real Sisters, Frameline 44, and won a Lionsgate Stars Award at the Black Star Film Festival. So it's a lot. Yeah. How was that? How was your directorial debut? How was directing? How was going through, like we talked about before, all the all the marketing and making sure it's going to the right places? How yeah. was that? It was amazing. <laughs> it was one of the highlights of my creative career. Um, 
Absolutely, hands down. Um, you know, I started directing because I realized quickly early on that features are a director's medium and that I have certain features that I write and I have that I want to be part of the vision from start to finish. And so to do that, I was like, I'm going to have to get my directing together. <laughs> um, so, you know, I started taking classes and all these things. And so Tender was a way for me to get my feet wet in a contained way, two actors, one location, one day. Um, but I wanted to show, use it as a calling card in terms of the types of topics and themes I want to explore in, in my work. Um, Black women's joy and um, uh, desire and sexuality um, and friendship and sisterhood. Uh, so it was able, I felt like I was going to be able to do that. And then when COVID hit, cause we, we premiered at Outfest Fusion a week before everything shut down. Um, so probably around May, I made the decision in, um, consultation with my producer, Regina Hoyles, like, let's just release it online. And we came up with a plan alongside, uh, another part of member of our team, Amber Brown, came up with a distribution plan to release it. And uh, the reception was beyond what I think we could have imagined. And uh, yeah, it's it's still, well, how, still can't believe it. How is that plan though? Especially because, you know, it's just releasing online. How are you strategic about doing something like that and making sure yeah, people so run it? We, um, we did a month, we did, we planned the campaign for a month. Yeah. Uh, a concentrated month, although we kept doing activities, we're still doing activities to this day for the film. But um, yeah. we first wanted to have a premiere partner. So we premiered with Shadow and Act. Um, so they premiered the film on their website. Then, so for every week we had what we call anchor content. So that was the first week anchor right. content. The second week was um, a Q&A with cast and crew and like a Twitter uh, chat. Then the third week was we had a tender case study. I, I think the third week might have been the release of the playlist, and then which was curated by the musicians behind the music and tender Asha, which was great. Thank you, Asha Santi and Boomscat. And then we had a tender case study uh, workshop that we did. And we had like th more than 300 people register for. Wow. Those were our anchor things. And then we used those to kind of um, drive awareness about the film um, for a concentrated period. And then we continued to do that. I mean, we were still doing film festivals and panels and talks and all of that. Um, but that was sort of what we, how we rolled out the film and I was, and then we also worked with, um, our publicist, Jasu Sims to help us get publicity around the film. And we got some really incredible press hits and I'm very proud of how we rolled out that film. Yes. And, um, what's the, what's the next step for that? Is it feature film? Yeah. Feature film, I mean, it's airing on stars right now. Um, still online because yes. I want to make sure we can still watch it online. Um, and then I'm working on the feature. I'm actually in the midst of writing the outline right now. And then we also have a Patreon that we're slowly building for people who want to be behind the scenes of the development of the project. Um, but yeah, that's the next step for that. And I want to just bring up the My First Time series, which is yes. is also in funding that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think yeah, it's brilliant. So, thank you. So, you know, I was going to hit up all these filmmakers for informational 
um, Zooms to talk about the making of their first feature. And I was like, well, why don't I just open it up? And also maybe we can use it as a fundraiser. So it is a series of talks, monthly talks, where I talk to a filmmaker about their first film. It's pay what you can fundraiser. We had a first one last month with Heidi Saman. And then we just recently over the weekend had Tyresha Poe talked about her film Selling the Spades, which sold to Amazon after a Sundance split. She was amazing. Um, And then we use those to those are hosted if you can't attend live as part of a perk, one of our perks on our Patreon. Nice. And so, how are people able to to learn more about that? Yeah, they can go to tendermovie.com um, and uh, and also to our IG Tender Movie. That's where we announce um, all of our events and that sort of thing. Excellent. So I only have a couple small questions now related to just the end of the podcast. So one is, what is your definition of success? Well, I'm already achieving it and it is walking in my purpose and walking in my power. Well said. Love it. And then who are a couple of your mentors? Um, Alice Mayette is um, also an Emerson grad who was the one who encouraged me to move to LA six years ago. <laughs> so I will, I'll, I just love her so much. Um, she's one of my big, big mentors. Um, who And Anthony Sparks, who's the showrunner of Clean Sugar. I definitely count him as a mentor. Um, I learned so much from him. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, definitely look up to Ava DuVernay, the creator of Queen Sugar, who has done remarkable things and just and is like you feel like she's only getting started. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, it's amazing to watch her career and all that she does to give back. It's pretty amazing. She does. Felicia. Thank you so much for doing this, for being part of the podcast. I, like I said, I'm very honored to, to have you wanted to talk with you about your career and your journey. And uh, I've learned so much. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment, you know, would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.